Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome back from your weekends. So, um, obviously, last night, like many people across the world, I was watching the Game of Thrones finale. But earlier in the day, as we were sort of sharing notes around uh, about today's show, um, producer Scott Breedy mentioned something. And, you know, sometimes... As a host, I'm kind of running out of ideas. So, my you know the next talent you have to develop after you start to run out of ideas is the ability to recognize somebody else's really good idea. And just in passing, Scott, he had a link to a news article, and he just said, you know, this is one of the things that just makes me feel like we're living in Gilead. Now, Gilead is the fictitious country in which Margaret Atwood's book and the uh, subsequent uh, Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale is set. Uh, it's uh, a partitioned part of the United States, um, and it takes place, obviously, in a dystopian future. Uh, and in that, I mean, the, uh, if you're familiar with the story at all, you know that uh, reproduction is sort of the linchpin, at least, of the plot of the novel uh, and of the series. Because of various circumstances, uh, roughly a quarter, I think, of the women who who could be fertile are actually fertile. And so they wind up in these particular roles, There's these roles in which their reproductive processes are totally controlled uh, by other people, men, um, and, and they are sort of uh, the ultimate surrogates in terms of uh, creating life for these families. Uh, so, um, you know, <laughs> I did suddenly think when Scott wrote that, I thought, is it possible that while, we were, while we've been watching Game of Thrones for the last eight years, America turned into Gilead? And in certain ways, particularly in certain in recent weeks, it, it does feel that way. So we're going to have a conversation about that with several writers and thinkers. Uh, we're also going to let you uh, make some uh, comments towards the end of the show by phone. Uh, we're going to begin with Sarah Jones, a staff writer for New York Magazine. Uh, her 2017 piece in The New Republic is titled The Handmaid's Tale is a Warning to Conservative Women. Uh, so, so first of all, Sarah, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. And so when you say it's a warning to conservative women, a, a lot of your perspective uh, on this comes from growing up in, in a pretty strict religious environment, uh, even up to and including college, right? That's correct. Yes. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I was growing up, my parents identified as Christian fundamentalists and I was homeschooled um, for most of uh, primary and middle school. And then I went to a really conservative Christian college called Cedarville University in Ohio. Um, so, and then, and then I, I ended up leaving the church when I was, um, finished with Cedarville. Um, so yeah, the, the roughly the first 22 years of my life, I, I pretty much spent it in this environment. And, and as I recall from the piece, one of the things that triggered your departure was a meeting uh, on campus about certain aspects of campus decorum, I think, a meeting uh, or a kind of forum that was entirely delivered to the women by men, right? Yeah. In fact, it was the first um, of several annual events. I, I don't know if they're actually still holding them, um, but it, it certainly wasn't the last event of its kind when I was a student there. And it was co-sponsored, as I recall, by uh, the abstinence 
the pro abstinence organization on campus. And it was really, it was a panel of men and they were weighing in on the clothing worn by women on campus. And they were there to answer questions about what was modest and what was immodest uh, so that we could avoid being stumbling blocks for them. In other words, so we could avoid tempting them into sin. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how well this uh, current environment, particularly the new Alabama uh, abortion laws and, and some of the other state laws that preceded it, how well this maps onto the reality of Game, uh, of Game of Thrones. I just did it. Uh, how well it maps on to the reality of A Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and let's uh, hear a little clip uh, from the show. This is Aunt Lydia, who is one of the kind of supervising uh, women. She's an older woman who supervises the handmaids and tells them what to do and what to think. Of everything. They filled the air with chemicals and radiation and poison. So God whipped up a special plague the plague of infertility. As birth rates fell, they made things worse. Birth control pills, morning after pills, murdering babies just so they could have their orgies. They were dirty women. They were sluts. But you are special girls. Fertility is a gift directly from God. He left you intact for a biblical purpose, like Bila served Rachel. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful and their barren wives, you will bear children for them. Oh, you are so lucky! The amazing uh, actor Anne Dowd uh, performing that role. So, Sarah, obviously you you do think that there's some mapping that can go on between that reality and our own. Uh, you thought so in 2017 when you wrote the piece. I assume nothing that's happened recently would discourage you from thinking that way. Yeah, I mean... No novel is an exact Rosetta Stone for, for, you know, current political events. But when Margaret Atwood originally wrote The Handmaid's Tale, it was a look at, at a future that could happen if the nascent Christian right did succeed in coming to power. And so several decades on from the publication of this book, we can look at the Christian right in the U.S. and we can see that it is more powerful than it was even back then. Um, and they're in power right now. And so, it, you know, if it feels like we're inching closer to Gilead, it's because we're inching closer to this um, political reality that people have been working for decades to create. Right. Um, in fact, uh, AOC, as we now call her, uh, in a tweet this week, and actually used the term theocracy to describe what she sees happening with some of these new these new state laws. Um, so, you know, I mean, in a way, you're in a good position to answer this question. Um, not everybody who opposes abortion is is the type of autocrat who would set up a Gilead. Not every there are. I would imagine in your upbringing, you just ran against. You must have run into occasionally people who just conscientiously, you know, thought it was murder, thought it was wrong, opposed it for that reason. Uh, and I don't know if you developed any particular way of just making a distinction between that kind of person and a person who wants to seize control uh, over women, or or maybe you don't make that distinction. You know, in the past, I did think it was important to to recognize that there was a distinction between individuals who were personally pro-life. In other words, they would not themselves go get an abortion. 
um, because they believed that it was immoral or, or sinful or otherwise wrong. And then people who were personally and politically pro-life, so either supported bans or abortion or wanted to make it so difficult for women to get abortions that it was practically illegal anyway. Um, but, you know, in recent weeks, I've been rethinking that a little bit because so these laws are based on certain beliefs that people have about abortion and about fetal personhood. And I believe that those beliefs are actually harmful, even if a person is sincerely committed to them and, and certainly doesn't intend to set themselves up as an autocrat. I think we need to think a bit more carefully and a bit more critically about the sort of damage that that rhetoric can do. Um, there's a way in which Handmaid's Tale, you know, I mean, obviously the first place our thoughts go uh, are to these reproductive issues. But there are other ways in which, you know, Handmaid's Tale is recognizable in parts of other parts of our life. I mean, even watching the way Donald Trump lately has been talking about the wall and he wants the wall to be painted black so it'll heat up and hurt people when they try to climb it and have spikes uh, up at the top of it so that uh, people's hands will uh, be cut if they go up to the top of it. The news that some of the members of some of the officials of the Department of Homeland Security wind up stepping back because because they were very concerned about these planned raids, these roundups that would go into various cities and just grab whole families. There, there's, there are ways in which you can see little signatures from Atwood's vision, uh, or, or I guess I should be asking that as a, as a question. Are there ways in which that have nothing to do with reproduction, in which you see a little bit of Atwood's and, and the series signature on our current life? Right. Yeah, no, I, I think you can. And you know, when we're talking about theocracy, we're talking about fascism. That's essentially, um, you know, when we see glimpses like this, I see it as a fascist impulse, whether I would not say that we're obviously living in a full-blown fascist government. But certainly this autocratic impulse um, seems rooted so deeply in cruelty and hostility to anyone who, who's sort of deemed a threat to this pure white Christian state. Um, and you can see it manifesting in hostility towards immigrants and in hostility towards women, women's reproductive rights. Um, I, it occurred to me to wonder actually what Margaret Atwood had to say about all of this, and I know that she's been vocal about it. Uh, so, uh, Wolfie, this will be clip number four, but uh, we did uh, find her talking about this uh, kind of right around the time, Sarah, that you were writing your article. She's uh, being asked if The Handmaid's Tale reads differently now and is read differently now than when the book came out in 1985. As for the United States, uh, the the pushback is in full swing. You're seeing women's reproductive rights being rolled back at a very swift pace. So in 85 it was nervously in the United States um, how long have we got and uh, conditions changed overnight on November the 9th of last year. So the two previous elections were we dodged the bullet and and this one not. That's why you saw those big marches. So yes, it's being read very differently. Unfortunately, I'm not pleased. So, uh, and Margaret when Margaret Atwood says she's not pleased, there's something very ominous about the way that she says that. Uh, so, Sarah, you know, um, 
I think uh, Atwood defines this, as many people do, as a, a set of reactions, not simply uh, with the goal of curtailing abortion, but in fact, maybe getting the reins back from the women's right move, rights movement, pushing back in other areas. Uh, we now have, have an article as of today talking about how Mike Pence, the vice president, has very carefully staffed uh, the Department of Health and Human Services with uh, people who are very much uh, his acolytes or people who are like minded with him and want to do things like defund Planned Parenthood. Um, so I mean, one of the things that I think people struggle with is, yes, I mean, ultimately you see an awful lot of men behind uh, the the impulse to, to craft these laws in places like Alabama and Georgia. But there also are women who are involved in all this. And um, one, one parallel you drew was to Serena Joy, who is the, the wife uh, who is infertile and who's, whose babies can only come from the, the handmaid. Uh, and uh, we eventually learn a little bit about her background. And it did seem to you, I think, like the background of some of the fem- female com- conservative voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I very much saw a parallel between her and, and Phyllis Schlafly and, and women who are in the pro-life movement. And uh, just my own experience growing up, if you were a woman and you wanted to do something, then be a housewife um, and mother, um, then your options were very limited. And it seemed like the, the Phyllis Schlafly check was one other option you could choose. If you didn't actually just want to be at home all the time, um, you would have this role to play in sort of propping up a world order that in my mind would eventually come back to bite you. Um, but is framed instead as this liberating, uh, force for women. Um, which is, seems to be the mindset that Serena Joy has not only in the show, but in the book as well. So uh, there are some people who will listen to this conversation and say, you know, maybe we're overreacting a little bit. I mean, this is still a country where there are multiple voices being heard. You you have a politician like Ocasio-Cortez uh, who can play a prominent role in the debate. And you're talking about Handmaid's Tale, which is pretty, pretty, pretty monocultural for the most part. So um, and we've read pieces like this. Um, re- react to that. What about that notion that maybe we're talking about Gilead a little bit too soon? Well, you know, I mean, it's important to keep in mind we are talking about a novel. It's a work of speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're not living in Gilead. I, I, you know, I don't know whatever the worst case scenario for America might not look much like Gilead or it might. We just we just don't know. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly I, I would just say to people who are concerned and who maybe their instinct would be to say, oh, this feels a lot like Gilead is is to just keep in mind that the book, again, is talking about fascism. It's talking about abuses of power. And um, certainly those those don't belong to the realm of, of fiction only. They We can see them manifesting now, and, and, and they've been in place for a long time. Um, by the way, if people want to join in the conversation over the course of the show, I'm kind of le- leaning towards having most of the calls uh, at the end of the show. But if you hear something, you feel like you need to react to it, our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Right now we're talking to Sarah Jones, staff writer for New York Magazine. Her 2017 piece in The New Republic was entitled The Handmaid's Tale is a Warning to Conservative Women. I w- would assume that maybe today particularly after the passage of this new wave of, of laws, you might say that it's a warning to not just conservative women? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're heading into primary season, and for better or worse, 
And so we're thinking, we, we were hearing rhetoric from some candidates like Joe Biden, for example, that Trump is something of an aberration. Um, we heard from Hillary Clinton back in 2016 um, that America was already great. And when I think about the sort of America that existed when I would actually polish The Handmaid's Tale, it's a, it's a powerful argument against America having been great at that time. Um, we are seeing the manifestation of efforts that have been going on for, for decades. This is not a new problem. It's, in fact, a very old problem. Um, and if it seems threatening now, you know, I would argue that it should have felt this threatening a long time ago. Um, so I, I hate to just say, you know, uh, these laws, as cool as they are, should be wake-up calls. But I do hope they encourage people to to think about all the political work that's been going on to make these these laws uh, a reality where they could even be passed, and to think about maybe what what they could do to prevent them from from uh, ever coming into effect. Yeah, I mean, I, I think ever since the day after the election in 2016, where it seemed as though this thing that couldn't happen had happened. Well, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, and I think all of us have had ways or, or challenges to put that into any, some kind of understandable framework. You know, if you think if you feel as though you're living in a fiction as opposed to in a reality, that should worry you. If you, if you think that you're living in an improbability that could have only been created by a highly imaginative future based fiction writer like Margaret Atwood. That should trouble you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, listen, Sarah Jones, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, We're going to continue with this theme. Did we watch the wrong fantasy show for the last eight years? Were we paying too much attention to Westeros and not enough to Gilead? We're going to talk more about this in the next segment. So, uh, And feel free to call us, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Love to know how you're feeling. I only wanted what everyone wanted since bras started burning up ribs in the 60s. Favors are flying, faces are falling, and all I desire is to never be waiting. If that's a crime, let's commit it. There's a new crime, sexual suicide. So just to remind you a little bit, uh, this all kind of started over the weekend where because of something that our producer Scott Breedy wrote, I thought, yeah, maybe we've been watching the wrong fantasy show. Maybe we've been glued to Game of Thrones for eight years. And meanwhile, aspects of the reality depicted as Gilead, the fictional country in Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, and on the series that now appears on, on Hulu, aspects of that are coming closer and closer, or maybe coming closer. I mean, it's an arguable point. It's a debatable point. Uh, and uh, and we'd love to hear a little bit from you uh, about that. But certainly that notion, anyway, uh, of women having less control over their own bodies uh, seems to be in vogue again all of a sudden. Uh, and so as I was thinking about this, uh, and as Scott and I were writing back and forth about it. Um, Saturday Night Live came on with its season finale. Now, the thing that you need to know that I can't convey to you on the radio, except in the way I'm about to do it, is as Leslie Jones slides into view uh, on the news set, she is wearing, in fact, the red cape and the white bonnet uh, that are the mark, uh, the uniform of the handmaids uh, in that series. Uh, and and the other thing you should probably know, if you don't know the series very well, is that, that there's a chilling moment at the beginning where it, it's the 
the moment where the, the protagonist suddenly realizes it's her first clue that something has gone wrong. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's in Atwood's novel, too. That notion that she, she, the way she finds out is that her credit card doesn't work. Suddenly, she is not able to access um, her normal purchasing power through her credit card. And it turns out it's because she's a woman. Anyway, so picture Leslie Jones, if you can, in a red cape and a white bonnet sliding in next to Colin Jost and listen to this. We are all handmaids now, so my name is actually of Jost. <laughs> but I don't know how good of a baby maker I'm gonna be because my eggs is dusty as hell. <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. But this is how it starts. I'm out living my life, then I see on the news a bunch of states are trying to ban abortion and then tell me what I can and can't do with my body. Next thing you know, I'm in Starbucks and they won't take my credit card because I'm a woman instead of the regular reason, which is I don't have no money on it. <laughs> you can't control women because uh, I don't know if y'all heard, but women are the same as humans. <laughs> And I'm Leslie Dracaris Jones. Yeah! I mean, why do all of these weird-ass men care about what women choose to do with their bodies anyway? I don't care what you do with your 65-year-old droopy-ass balls. That was accompanied by uh, a kind of uh, poster of uh, all of the men, a lot of the men behind these laws. And, of course, they're, for the most part, well, they're all white men and rather aging men. I can't really comment on the specific physical condition that she's referring to. But uh, So joining us now is Molly Roberts, editorial writer for The Washington Post, whose opinion piece published May 17th is entitled Why It's Time to Retire the Handmaids. Uh, Molly Roberts, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So there's no way you can argue against Leslie Jones, and I, I won't ask you to do that. <laughs> She's a force of nature. But but I think maybe one thing we need to do to set the stage is, because is, I don't think we did it in the first segment, is say this the connection between Atwood's vision and the vision of that series, it's showing up, it's shown up a lot in public protests, right? Is in any place outside any courthouse or statehouse or White House or Capitol where women, women are gathered to, to protest on behavior, uh, on, on behalf of their uh, re- control of their reproductive rights, you see often see women in these uh, red capes and bonnets. Uh, maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this has really become the defining image of the fight for reproductive rights in this moment. So it's almost every time you see a news story, for example, the featured image with it, yeah, occasionally it'll be people not dressed in any costume in particular holding up signs, but often it is the handmade photo. And, you know, this began in Texas when the legislature there was passing a really restrictive law and it continued through the Brett Kavanaugh hearings that women were arriving, kind of big groups of them wearing these costumes and often standing all together in big groups, staring down somberly. And I think that when it was a big spectacle like that, it was really effective. It kind of jolted people into attention. But my feeling is that at this point, continuing on with that same image over and over again, kind of iteratively, the initial effect of that spectacle is lost a little and all that's left is the flattening of this big problem that matters right here, right now, into a single image from a TV show and book. Right. And I mean, I think if we were to argue on behalf of the image or on behalf of 
Handmaid's Tale as an interesting way to to map from there to our current reality and back again. You know, there's some things that it does well, and there's and those are worth hanging on to. And I think one of them is that notion that if you wait until you've lost your rights to try to fight for your rights, it's a much harder struggle. And one of the things that uh, that I think happens at the beginning of the book in, and, and at the TV series is it's kind of too late and the warning signs might have been there for a while, but nobody quite understood that things were happening by degrees. And, and, and really, we wake up into the reality of The Handmaid's Tale when so much ground has been lost. And one way that I would react to it anyway, is that, yeah, it's a pretty good reminder that if you think things are slipping away inch by inch, you're probably right. Yeah, no, and I think that that's fair. And I don't have a problem generally with the comparison being drawn. And again, I didn't have a problem at all with the spectacle. But I think that part of the problem is that using this as the avatar of the abortion rights movement misses a lot of how real life is bad enough already. I think that focusing on fiction basically says, well, you know, what would be really, really bad would be if we existed in this hypothetical reality. And I think that it's useful also to say, well, you know what, what we have on the ground is a big problem. Here is how it's a problem. And here is how we should be fighting against that problem rather than suggesting that it's Gilead we should be afraid of. Maybe it is America as it exists today that we should be afraid of. Right. I mean, I, I saw this in the 90s where uh, some the, the situation in Somalia, the devolving situation in Somalia was constantly compared to Mad Max. I mean, I can't tell you, <laughs> I started collecting this at a certain point. So many journalists are saying it looked like it looks like Mad Max. It seems like Mad Max. And, and similarly, uh, right around that same time, uh, the L.A. riots post Rodney King were constantly comp- compared to Blade Runner. It uh, looks like Blade Runner, feels like Blade Runner. And there's, there's a way in which we're infantilizing ourselves a little bit. It's almost as though, as journalists, we're saying to people, okay, you couldn't be expected to understand this as an actual nitty-gritty reality with certain details that are worth knowing about, which is, all of which exists right now, is happening right now, is happening to people just like you right now. So, But we do, th- do think that there's some pop culture that you might have absorbed at some point that we can actually clue you in a little bit on. And I think, as you're suggesting, that also pushes it into that realm as opposed to the right. thing that's happening right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that this is a big tendency. People love to do it with Harry Potter and say, oh, well, Trump is Voldemort. And I mean, maybe Trump has some things in common with Voldemort, but I think that also makes it impossible really to have a conversation about what Donald Trump actually is. And I think that those are important conversations. And so just saying, well, I'm going to flatten it into this image because that image is understandable en masse can be useful in some ways. Again, it can bring people to attention. It can make them realize it's a problem. But then when it really comes to discussing what the problem is, you need to do better than that. Right. And I think the other, as I was saying, and we both, Sarah Jones and I were both saying in the earlier segment too, it's really not, I mean, in a way, the other problem is if you make it all about the red cape and the white bonnet and you show up for your protest in the red cape and the white bonnet, in a way, you're also losing some of the nuance and sophistication of Margaret Atwood's vision that she wasn't just writing about that. She was writing about a situation where a lot of other liberties are gone and that a kind of cruel 
cruelty uh, has had substituted itself for mercy and liberty and democracy uh, in this place called Gilead. And as I look around, and I was talk- I was say- saying this at the top of the show, you look around at things like, yeah, the DHS officials who, who step down rather than participate uh, in these uh, these raids. They're going to hit cities and pull families out altogether, uh, these immigration raids. And you look at the way even that President Trump describes this fence that he wants, this wall that's going to have black metal because black will heat up more and spikes at the top of it and everything. I mean, I do see a little bit of Atwood's vision, and but maybe the mistake is confining it just to the reproductive piece. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think another thing that I have found interesting about watching the handmade protests is I understand what's happening. I understand the idea is we're going to reclaim these garments that are supposed to show that these women are oppressed to make our point and to subvert it. But at the same time, there's something a little queasy, I think, about the idea that the most powerful form of this handmade protest is to stand there in silence as the handmaids we're supposed to do. And I feel a little bit like, well, yes, we can stand there in silence and maybe that's powerful, but also perhaps this is a problem we should be shouting about instead. Right. And and also, I mean, in the sense that this problem lives here in our present moment in the U.S. in 2019, not in Gilead in the far distant future, there are details about it worth knowing. There's ways in which the law in Alabama differs from the law in Georgia. There's things that could be suggested as as better um, substitutes for, for what's happening right now. And it's kind of like you don't have that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I think you missed the question of what is it exactly that we are objecting to? Because obviously the most useful and most powerful parallel is that women in Gilead are stripped entirely of bodily autonomy and they're just treated as incubators. And I think you can argue certainly that that is the motivation behind all of these really restrictive laws. But also what's happening in Gilead is the idea that, well, you know, the only time that these women are allowed to have sex is when they are raped by their masters and then they have to carry their child. And there's this huge complicated debate here about rape and incest exceptions and whether an abortion restriction law is more tolerable if those exceptions are in place. And I think that, you know, seizing on this image where the reality of it really only has to do with rape makes it harder to have that nuanced conversation about why perhaps even with rape and incest restrictions, this law is impermissible, that sort of thing. Yeah. And and, um, for people who don't want to think uh, about the, I mean, I totally take your point there, which is that putting those kinds of restrictions or those those exemptions in there uh, might seem like kind of a balm um, uh, to to calm people down. Uh, but also, the people who don't want, to, I mean, the Alabama law uh, doesn't do that. Uh, and then you start thinking right. about, I mean, I've never been a pregnant woman, but my sense of it is that it's a set of bodily changes and emotional changes that just are so profound that it's almost impossible to communicate them to another person. And then I imagine being being, I try to imagine being that woman, you know, who's been raped, uh, who has been uh, subjected to uh, to incest, impregnated through incest, and who has a tremendous uh, amount of revulsion uh, about that. And then being forced to live day by day, month by month through a pregnancy. Um, it, maybe that's the kind of imaginative act that Atwood can help us get to, but not about somebody who's in a weird costume in the future, but somebody who's wearing normal clothes right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that that is precisely the point, too. It's that the weird costume, like you said, it makes it feel a little foreign. And I think that that is my main beef with it, is that this shouldn't feel foreign at all. This should feel like today. And even though 
doing that image is powerful because the weirdness is arresting. I think that it has a bit of an alienating effect, and I don't think anybody can afford to be alienated at the moment. All right. Uh, well, well said, uh, Molly Roberts. Thank you so much for joining us for this segment. Molly Roberts, editorial writer for The Washington Post, whose opinion piece published May 17th is entitled Why It's Time to Retire the Handmaids. Now what's going to happen is we're going to go to a break. Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to call in and tell me what, how you're feeling about all this. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And WNPR Colin on the Twitters. Uh, so do it that way too, and I'll read your tweets out. So let's take a little break, and we will be back after this. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other At least this explains why Mike Pence keeps asking for my Hulu password. Today's show was produced by Scott Breedy, with help from Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Elizabeth Moss. Tomorrow, a show about Barbie, which is not that big a transition from this when you think about it. Do they make a Gilead Barbie? And now, back to Colin. All right. Welcome back to our show and our conversation. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. The kind of aperture that we came out of the weekend with, with was, have we been watching the wrong fantasy series? Have we paid too much attention to Game of Thrones? Not enough attention to The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, let's go to Kathy uh, in South Windsor. I've also got some tweets that I need to read. Uh, you can tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. Hi, Kathy. You're on the air. Hi. Um, couple of things. First, your guest was talking about Phyllis Shafley, and it reminded me of, um, I remember Phyllis Shafley, and there was an article about the governor of Alabama, and she reminds me very much of Phyllis Shafley and how uh, to the right she was. But also, there was news on, just before your program came on, about two states who are taking action against Alabama, uh, one, I believe, was Colorado, who is going to prevent travel, state travel, to the state. And I believe it was Georgia, who is looking into their pension um, money that is comes out of Alabama and to look and have it removed from uh, the um, state. So I thought that was pretty interesting that there's such a reaction to what's happening. Right. Well, let me just quickly say that, yeah, there have been some, I'm not aware of that second one, but um, the, um, I mean, that could be very effective. If you look what happened with North Carolina and the bathroom law and, and the way that that was turned into um, an argument against doing business in North Carolina uh, and bringing major sports events to North Carolina and shooting movies in North Carolina. And I know already several uh, prominent a- actors have said that they don't want to shoot movies uh, in Georgia or Alabama. Uh, these states 
states do depend, particularly these days, um, film commerce is now a big part of any state's economic development plan. So th- when things like that begin to happen, when you see those kinds of waves, you know, it's something that I probably should have asked uh, both of the guests, uh, both Molly and Sarah, is, you know, what, what can people do if they feel as though they're living in Gilead or something that could turn into Gilead uh, and they don't want it to? And I mean, that kind of stuff, it does seem to work. I mean, it really uh, has had a pretty significant impact in some other cases. Now, in, in this situation, I should say that has been pretty well documented, which they themselves will tell you, the lawmakers creating some of these laws, particularly the Alabama law, the, but, but all of these laws, none of these laws are in effect uh, they're they're not in effect because everybody knew they wouldn't go into effect because they would immediately be challenged in the courts. And in the case of Alabama and some of these other laws, the, the people behind them have said, oh, no, well, our goal was not. It's interesting because when, when it gets argued, it's going to be in, this question of intent may become kind of in, uh, an interesting one. But our, our goal was to have the Supreme Court essentially rehear Roe versus Wade. And, and in order to do that, we had to write a law that would be challenged and challenged in such a way that it, it kind of necessitated a revisiting of Roe versus Wade. So, you know, you, you, you look at all that and you realize that, and see, and I wonder about that. I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, often um, when the courts, when appeal courts look at laws, they look at legislative intent. And if the legislative intent, if there's some doc- documentation that the legislative attempt was just to get into court, I wonder if that affects how the court views these things. But but anyway, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. But it is important to realize these bills, they have kind of a long game rather than a short game. Uh, the game isn't to have it be the case that people wake up in North in uh, Alabama tomorrow and don't uh, have access to abortion under any other circumstances, the goal is to get to the Supreme Court and see what can be done about Roe versus Wade, see if the new Trump-appointed justices help swing a majority uh, into uh, um, a rebuke uh, and and revision uh, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, All right, here's a call from Chris. I got some tweets to read, too, at WNPR. Colin, Uh, here's Chris in Middlebury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. I enjoy the show. Um, I uh, came across an article this morning in Medium, it was on a news feed, uh, that men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancies. And uh, it, was, it was written by Gabrielle Blair. Um, and she made a couple of interesting points that I, I think would be worth considering here. One is that the, the sort of punitive measures that we're focusing on really are not tackling the... Um, the basic issue, which is reducing the number of unwanted pregnancies and thus reducing the number of abortions and tackling the problem from that perspective, which I think would get people on both sides of the issue to, to agree. I don't think most people would say, you know, we really want to have abortions. Um, for them, it's solving the problem of an unwanted pregnancy. So the the whole idea of of going after doctors and uh, really whacking them with with a big stick is really not addressing, I think, the fundamental underlying reasons why um, people want to have abortions. 
Right. Um, Free- which is not to say that you know the issue is is not you know of women's rights and rights over their bodies and such is not an important issue. But I, I think we're dancing around trying to address the fundamental problem. So if you think about promoting um, vasectomies that are inexpensive and and really um, trying to get as many men as possible to undergo reversible and cheap vasectomies, that's one part of the problem. If you focus on promoting the use of contraceptives, that's another part of the problem. Um, and so to tackle the thing in, in a positive way to try and, and prevent these things from happening in the first place, uh, but <laughs> encouraging the behaviors that you want rather than sanctioning the end result. And I think for a lot of the, the, the fundamentalists and, and conservatives, the issue that this is a human right is, is also something that one can address uh, in a respectful way. Um, I, I would agree. First of all, I, I, I think you're right about a lot of this stuff, Chris. Although my advice is when you make this argument in the future, don't lead, don't lead with vasectomies. You know, <laughs> that's going to sort of don't have that be the first thing that you mention. But you're certainly right about it. And I want to go back to another point you made a little bit earlier. Uh, and by the way, I'm hoping uh, women will call in. We have a lot of men calling in about this yeah. issue. Eight, I mean, you're a fine caller. I'm not. But I, I got other guys up on the board. 860-275-7266. So some of these states, I believe the Georgia, I, I can't quote chapter and verse of the Georgia law, but some of these states are at least addressing the responsibility of men in all this. And and uh, it has been suggested, I mean, so including financial financial support and all this kind of stuff, that you don't just get to cause a pregnancy that somebody else has to carry to term because we forbid abortion and you do nothing about it. So uh, you own half of this situation. Uh, and certainly if you created tougher and tougher laws about that so that men who get women pregnant and don't support the um, the offspring, you know, that we can garnish your wages, we can do all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, you'd see men maybe turn around a little bit uh, on this issue and maybe ultimately determine, decide maybe that it may make a little bit more sense to let women control their bodies. But your other point, it's we're sort of back to the Clinton rhetoric, right, of safe, legal, and rare. Um, that that's what we'd like abortion to be. Uh, but it really, if you, uh, if, and we should say, the rate of abortion in this country, according to every legitimate study that I've seen, the numbers of abortion have been dropping steadily since about 2008. And some of that might be attributable to more restrictive laws. But it's pretty clear, I think, from the research that most of it is attributable to birth control. If you don't want to have abortions, make sure everybody has access to and education about reliable forms of birth control. And, and probably, once again, uh, some of the research I was reading this morning were suggest- was suggesting that things like IUDs uh, may play some, a significant role, something that you can put in and sort of, quote unquote, forget about, as opposed to having to remember to do various things or stop what you're doing and do something else. Uh, but yeah, if you, if you want to lower the rate of abortions, don't have so many unwanted pregnancies. If you don't want to have unwanted pregnancies, have really good birth control. But I think, as you're suggesting, that doesn't always go along with some of the people who want to push for these kinds of highly restrictive laws. They're not really into birth control. They're into just prohibiting abortion. Right. And, I, and also, uh, it would be part of the so-called natural law, you know, that uh, the whole argument against contraception, period. 
All right. Thanks very much for your call, uh, Chris. Our number, 860-275-7266. Got a couple of calls up on the board. We'd love to hear from more women, though. Obviously, uh, this has a lot to do with you. As we just suggested, it has a lot to do with men, too. But uh, we did get uh, a tweet from Aaron saying, if you haven't read uh, Yukon History's Cornelia Dayton's 1991 article, uh, Taking the Trade, Abortion and Gender Relations in an 18th Century New England Village. You should. I wonder if that's because of the Gilead parallel. Uh, Kevin tweets, let's not forget that in 2017, the state uh, GOP introduced a mandatory ultrasound bill for women seeking abortions. This isn't just a red state issue. It could happen here. All right. Our number, 860-275-7266. You may also similarly tweet at us at WNPR. Colin, uh, let's talk to uh, Mike in Manchester. Hi, Mike. How are you, Colin? Thanks Good. for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Two points. My first one I would make this hitchhike and the point you just made. Uh, Warren Buffett, of all people, his wife, oh, probably about eight or nine years ago, uh, sponsored a, a study in Washington State where they uh, offered uh, Norplant to uh, lower-income uh, girls in high school. And the graduation rate for that demographic rate increased dramatically. So, once again, you know, if you're pregnant at 14, 15, 16, it is a life-changing event. Uh, my second point would be, very simply said, is we're kind of focusing now on the, the horror of abortion, and we're kind of missing the long game here that conservatives have played. Uh, for the past probably two generations, they have had a, a, a lockstep in, in the Midwest and the South where they have basically paid the long game and put the money into local districts and local elections so you can get the, these kind of state legislatures, which were basically just bought and paid for via gerrymandering and other, other techniques to take over these state governments, and this is the outcome of the long game. Uh, that's why it's so important when you look at political participation, things like gerrymandering, equal voting rights, and all things like this. This would not happen, if I, I believe, if we had this kind of thing, because I, I have to believe, having traveled my entire life, professional life, that... There's got to be a blowback in these states. I just think they're just so shell-shocked they don't know what to do because these people have just gotten in control. All right. Listen, thanks for your call. Uh, I said I wanted women to call in, and women did call in. Here's Margaret in Long Island. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Yeah, I'm calling because, first of all, if people are saying they're against killing fetuses, to me they should be saying I'm against all war and I'm against mass killings and all of that, but they're not. So I think that that shows that they're really against women having sex and being in control of their bodies. The other thing is, if they're into preventing pregnancy, they should be funding birth control, but they don't want to do that either. And But they will fund Viagra, right? Right. And I have been on birth control, tw- uh, and I've had two pregnancies on birth control, on reliable birth control. So it's not like you're just, you don't care and you just want to go and have an abortion or have sex, and you don't, you know what I mean? So yep. that's what I want to say. Thank All right. You. Thanks for your call. I mean, I think one thing that is worth pointing out in, in connection with what Margaret just said is these. there's a very close track, uh, a tracking of 
the states that have these very, very restrictive anti-abortion laws and their rate of infant mortality. The rate of infant mortality is higher than the states than that of the states that have uh, a more open-ended uh, reproductive laws. And you think about that too. Like, what does that mean? And and you can't necessarily do a kind of cause and effect, but uh, it would make sense anyway. To Margaret's point, if you cared about human life, if you cared about infant life, you would do everything in your power to provide a terrific uh, prenatal uh, and neonatal care. That you, one of the things you would really want to make sure would be, since you are one of these quote unquote pro life states, that you had one of the lowest infant mortality rates, and that is just not the way that it works. It works the opposite way. So uh, here's a Marie in Hartford. She's probably going to be the uh, end of the show today. So hi, Marie. Uh, what have you got to say? Oh, hi. Um, pretty much similar to what the last lady said. But uh, the thing is that people that don't want um, abortions, they want to tell people when they can have sex. They want to tell people that they can't have sex before marriage. They want to tell people that they can, who they can have sex with. They don't want, uh, you know, often don't want abortion at any like they don't want contraception. And then once these children are born, um, it's like we throw them to the wind. When women make decisions about abortion, it often is um, trying to figure out the best scenario for everybody. And um, I don't believe that people who don't want abortion really care about these babies if we don't want to have quality education quality housing, and quality life in this country. I think it's about, I, I love that man's idea of what he was saying about let's get to the logic of it, mm. but I really think it's about control of women and control of poor people. All right. Uh, well, that's as good a place to end as any, not a particularly inspiring place to end, but probably a pretty accurate statement. And one that kind of tracks us back a little bit to our ultimate theme of Gilead and the vision of Margaret Atwood. So first of all, thanks for listening today. Uh, we are talking about Barbie tomorrow, uh, and it's not as big a jump as you might think uh, from where we are right now. We'll also be talking a little bit later in the week about law enforcement, about uh, who gets prosecuted, uh, who doesn't, who gets charged and with what, um, and who goes to prison and who doesn't. So that might fit in a little bit with Marie's call as well. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Scott Breedy was the producer, Kion Wolf on the board, Betsy Kaplan uh, in charge of the phones, and thanks to all of you who listened and who called in. <laughs>